You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. We just, we love having folks join us online. We love having you join us in person. We know that it's a lot to give your Sunday morning to something, especially if you're just exploring faith or you honestly don't know how you even ended up here because that does happen at times. Uh, So we just want to say welcome and please do fill out that Connect card. It's really helpful for us to be able to best serve you by knowing kind of what's going on in your life. You don't need to give us your social security number. Just be like, hey, I'm new to the area, or hey, I could use prayer, or hey, I just need some friends. And that gives us a good point to say, hey, we'd love to get to know you and help you with those things. So we are working our way through the Bible. If you have not been with us at all in 2022, almost to 2023, we're gunning really close. We have been working our way through the Old Testament, and I just want to give you guys a round of applause because today's the last day that we're going to be in the Old Testament for this year. No, no claps. You're all like, we're not done. We're not even close. No, it'll probably be next fall before we finish, but that's okay. It's been a really good exercise for most of us because the Old Testament is probably one of the hardest parts of the book to read, and it's a really large part of the book. So we're like, yeah, the New Testament, Jesus, that's all lovely and good and fun and still challenging. You get to Revelation. I met somebody who started there in their faith journey, and I was like, God bless you. You're extra holy if you started with the book of Revelation. I didn't even do that and wouldn't do that or recommend it. But the reality is the Old Testament was written a long time ago to a different group of people in a different land, in a different language, with a different culture. And basically, we have no similarities other than the fact that we're human and the people of Israel were human too. And so reading something that was written so long ago to so many different kinds of people can be really hard for us to properly understand. And it can make the Old Testament something we either shelve or are scared of, or frankly, God in the Old Testament just looks really intense. And so we don't really trust him, even though this Jesus guy in the New Testament seems pretty cool. And so what we've been trying to do in each of our Sundays as we've gone through the books, kind of rapid speed, is to take a look at what the author was really saying contextually, historically, literary, literally, 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 I don't know. But either way, we've been looking at all the different ways that you can understand and properly take apart biblical text so that when you're reading it on your own, you have a really good grid for what you're reading and how you can bring it into modern context for yourself. And I think that that's important for all of us because when we do that, what we find is this big, long story that's very personal and it's all about how God loves you and has been in pursuit of you for your entire existence and you may not ever have realized that and you may still have lots of questions and that's okay the point is that God is showing us on Sunday mornings and showing up to show the truth of his character which is that he is good he is consistent He is the same God that we see in Jesus that we see in the Old Testament. And by going through the text a little bit at a time, we're we're able to really grasp that. So before we jump into our final bit of the major prophets, we're ending in Ezekiel today, which is exciting. Um, I just want to give you a moment. If you were here last week, you can talk to somebody about how you applied last week's message. And if you weren't here, just share your highlight from the week with somebody. Just turn and look at them and say, okay, the best part of my week was this. <laughs> no, no big deal, right, Jen? <laughs> no 
Somebody broke something? That's your highlight? I mean. All right. If you haven't switched and shared for the other person's perspective, get the other person's perspective. All right, I'm gonna have you wind your stories down. You can share more of your highlights as soon as we get to the end of service. Usually like everybody stays for an hour after to just check in and chat. So, um, but we are going to wrap with the major prophets today, which means we are gonna conclude with chapters 34 to 48 of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is one of these crazy books because you read it and it's, if you've never read it before, I encourage you, if you're an artist, and you read this book, please draw the vision so that the rest of us who are visual people, yeah, I'm like, Jason, you can make some murals. Do you have Oh, yes. We were looking for some illustrations online, which is a scary place to go when you're trying to find somebody who's brought it to life because it is such an intense, strange thing that it's hard for us to like, yeah, wheels and eyes and gyroscopes and four faces. Anyway, if you're like, you've never read the Bible, now you're, you're definitely curious because that, that was a spoiler. Um, but either way, so they're talking, the time frame of all the major prophets is during this twofold exile where the, the southern tribes, the northern tribes, there's 12 of them, 10 up in the north have already been sent into exile by the empire of Assyria. The next major empire that comes onto the scene is Babylon, and they remove Judah from the promised land, which is a big deal, in a two-wave exile. The first one happens in like 586, nope, 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 590-something. Sorry, I've got my other one written down for the second one. Um, and basically, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in. They've broken a treaty. Israel's trying to play this power game politically where they're like, we're going to be friends with Egypt and Babylon to see if we can like get the best deal out of everything that's happening, which doesn't go well for them because they're not that politically savvy. And so it doesn't go well. Babylon comes in. They take them under control, and they basically say, you will pay us taxes. Um, you will be our colonists, if you will, and you will send us money, and then things will be fine. Ultimately, Ezekiel comes on the scene because he's in that first wave that gets exiled when, he's, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he's writing to the people who are in exile in a refugee camp in Babylon, and he says, that first thing that we saw isn't the worst thing we're about to endure. There's actually going to be a second exile. It's coming soon. We can't really avoid it, but I just want to show you how bad it's going to be so that you can prepare for the reality of what we're about to endure as a people. And seven years later, after he starts giving all of these warnings, which is 12 years into the exile, because he starts five years after they've already been exiled, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar returns because Zedekiah breaks his treaty with them politically and he decimates Zedekiah's family, like gouges out the eyes of his kids and he kills a bunch of them and then he kills two-thirds of the people of Israel. He destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem and marches those that are basically left alive out to Babylon where they are going to spend time in exile. And it was single-handedly the most painful event any of these people had ever experienced to date in, in Israel's history. I mean, I, I think you, they might, I wouldn't dare speak for them, but they may put this like right up there near the Holocaust as far as 
cataclysmic, absolutely horrendous, extremely traumatizing, because now every single tribe that has settled in Israel has been removed from their home. Their, their holy land has been decimated. They have been removed. The promises of God, like think of the deep, dark questions that you have for God. Think of the things that you wonder about him that maybe you haven't even dared to ask or voice to another human being. Israel is probably thinking those things as this is happening. God, if you're so good, why is this, why is this going on? If you really are loving, why are we being sent into exile? Where did you go? Have you abandoned us forever? Are your promises really something we can hold on to? What about hope? I don't have any of that right now, God. That's not even a question. That's just the reality of where they're, they're standing, what they're seeing around them. This is a painful, excruciating time for the people of Israel. And the beauty of what we get to see as people who didn't have to live through that as people who just get to read about it and engage with God's character because we get to see a little bit of his heart um, through Ezekiel, is that we get to watch God's proximity and what he does in the worst moments of Israel's life. We get to see how God chooses to act when there is great human suffering, when there is pain, when there is disappointment, when there is a loss of hope. And what I find as we're moving through this, and I hope it's true for you as well, is that God shows up and is far closer and far more committed to you than anything I've ever imagined. There's a tenacity to his love and a, and a nearness of his presence that you have to dig into the text to see. But when you see that, it reveals that God loves us so much that even at our worst, he refuses to go anywhere out of arm's length from us. I said two weeks ago, he goes ahead. Remember, he, he went ahead of, of Israel into Babylon. That's Ezekiel chapter one, where he physically leaves the temple. And where does he go? He doesn't go to heaven or another nation. He, go, well, sort of, he doesn't leave Israel. He goes ahead of Israel into the nation of Babylon to get ready for their arrival. That is the kind of God we see in the Old Testament. And so let's, I'm going to pray really, really quickly, and then we're going to jump into a quick recap and, and then finish up. But Holy Spirit, we ask for your revelation to see Jesus in the text. See the beauty of your heart and the fullness of your heart for each one of us here today. And for each person, Lord, they're here for a reason, and I know that you desire to speak. So would you... Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Start with an easy question. How many of you have ever built, created, designed something? Yeah. Give me like two, three answers from the crowd. What have you made? Songs. Songs? Yeah, there you go. Children. Children. <laughs> Lots of paintings. I was hoping Lauren would raise his hand and be like, I built a business. Yes, a business counts. Anything else? One more? Scrapbooks. Memory, memory collecting. Second question. We'll just part, piggyback off of that. When you have put your heart and soul into creating something, whether it's a child, a business, a painting, a song, 
you tend to put a lot of value on that because you've put yourself into something. You've invested part of you into the, the creation of something new. And as a result, you hold on to it and you would really like other people to honor it too, right? Like in theory, you would hope people would appreciate that child, that business, that song, that painting to the same degree that you do. You'd at least hope that they would respect it, right? Yeah. Somebody comes and like says your song stinks or I don't like your kid, you're going to be a little offended, which is valid because it's something that you put yourself into. So I want you to imagine the whole story of the Bible as if God built his dream house. I've never built a house before. We've renovated more spaces than I can imagine, and I wish I were done, but I'm not. So for those of you that have not maybe built your dream house, but you've lived in an apartment that required any repairs or a home, you can just think about all of the stress of that. So God decides to build his, his dream home, and he puts his heart and soul into it, right? He tells us in the beginning of the book, everything is good. It's perfect. It's exactly the way he wants it. The tiles, like if you're somebody that likes home design, the pillows match, the ceilings, whatever. I don't, I don't know what sort of things people do these days. But either way, you build it and you put your heart and soul and your love into it. And that's what God did when he created the world. And then is like, he'll just use the image of you building this house too. So you decide you're going to pass it on to your kids. You're like, I built this thing out of love. It is everything I ever envisioned. And the greatest thing I can do is give it to somebody I love so that they can enjoy it the way that I do. And that's what God did with creation. He made humanity. We were the cherry on top of everything he made, and he gave us this beautiful world to live in. And he says, go, keep creating, help it to flourish and thrive, invest in it, expand what I have given you, that it may be good and a blessing to the whole wide world. And all that sounds great, but over time... They didn't do such a good job taking care of the home, right? Humanity hasn't always honored or valued the house the way that the original homeowner did. We didn't have the same love and tenderness and compassion for creation that God did. And so instead, we actually let it start to deteriorate. And our selfish decisions, our desire to control and manipulate, ended up kind of destroying all the beautiful, good, and wonderful things that he gave us. And we tried to fix it. Right? There's good people out in the world all the time that are trying to fix things and make things better and deal with systems and, and fight oppression and feed people who are hungry and clothe the naked. And those are all really good things to be doing. But as much as we try to fix it, it feels like it's not really fixable. It's like putting a Band-Aid over a broken levee and hoping the flood might stop. And that's not to say that we don't do those things, but it's just the magnitude of the brokenness that we see. And so God's like, well, that's not exactly what I meant when I gave it to you. Um, good luck giving that to your grandkids and your great-grandkids and your great-great-grandkids. And eventually we get to our generation. We're like, I don't even know what to do anymore. Do we just give up? <laughs> and God's like, no. And, and the beauty of that is that because God's a good homeowner and he's still around, he comes back to his creation. Like the perfect contractor. If you've ever hired the perfect contractor, give me their name don't know if they exist. They're hard to find, let's be honest. Finding a good contractor is hard to come by these days. Um, but the reality is God says, you're not going to find anybody on earth that can do what I can do, that can fix what I made perfectly from the start. So I'm going to come back and fix it with you. And I'm going to teach you this time how not to break it. Because you guys need a little bit of help. It's like somebody gave us a power saw and we're like, yeah. And he's like, that was like the main frame 
That was a primary trust you just decided to cut through. He's like, I'm going to teach you how to use those things well. That is the meta-narrative of the Bible. If anybody's ever explained it to you, that is, I mean, not the house part, but that is the main story of the Bible is that God gave us something, we broke it, he alone can fix it, so he comes back and fixes it. And that is actually the, the main arc of Ezekiel, which is funny because we read this book and it's so fantastical with all of its poetry and its images that we sometimes don't realize it is a perfect micro picture of the whole book. It shows us this broadness. It talks about Jesus. And so the first 33 chapters unpack the real problem of humanity and our lack of value for this good creation we've been given. And what God says about that, or what Ezekiel, what he says through Ezekiel, is that basically we can't take care of this world because we're incapable of operating genuinely from love. See, God made the whole world out of love. There's an overflow of his very natural character and who he is. And so when he gave it to us, he said, you can only really function if you also take care of it the way that I started it. And humanity said, that's nice, but we don't trust love. We don't trust love because it doesn't feel like love is going to give us what we need. And so instead, we become controlling or manipulative. We try to dominate creation because we're afraid if we don't, we won't have the things we think we need to survive. And that is exactly what Adam and Eve did. They said, we need control. And they thought we didn't, they didn't have control, so they tried to do something to assert that control and stopped being able to operate from a place of love. Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20, images it this way that we have stony, stubborn hearts, that we are un- incapable of operating from and following God faithfully because we are just hard. We're turned off to him. We don't operate the way that he does. And Paul further illustrates this truth when we get into Romans chapters, well, most of Romans, honestly, but Romans 6 is a great highlight. He says in 6.16 that that condition that we're in, that selfishness, that inability to love is like being a slave. It's a condition. It's actually an illness. He uses it as a noun, not as a verb, most of the time when he's writing about sin in the book of Romans. And he says, you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. It's just this idea that we are incapable of truly living from a place of love without God because he is love. And so if we want to see any type of hopefulness, any type of change, any type of meaningful transition in our lives, there has to be a connect point with God. And so the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel basically line up that hopelessness and that state of, of humanity, that condition that we're all in, before he, cha- he transitions us in chapter 34 to the good stuff, where he says, you're not stuck here forever. And that is a word of hope this morning for any of you that feel stuck, whether it's mental health, depression, whether it's addiction, whether it's a dead-end career, a dead-end relationship, you don't know where to move and you're about to be homeless or you already are, God speaks words of hope because there is no situation outside of the ability of his transformation. And that is what the rest of Ezekiel shows us. It's not even just a fantasy that he talks about. We have gotten to see it come to life in our day and age. So let's go back to our analogy of a home or old buildings. If any of you have renovated an old building, You know that if you start renovating something, you know, you're like this, you buy a house, it's in utter disrepair, and you're like, okay, we need to fix 
literally everything, like literally everything. And if you just start whacking at walls or pulling out plumbing, you're going to make more of a mess than you already have. You have to go in order in order for it to be a livable home by the time that you get finished. You know, if you just rip the roof off and then you just don't fix it, well, the rest of your structure is about to crumble. So just accept that and move on. God, in the same way as the perfect creator of the world, knows the perfect order in which it needs to be restored. And so he goes in that perfect order. And sometimes it might feel a little slow to us, but Ezekiel lays it out so that we can see the beauty and the meaning behind the order God chose. So in chapter 34, excuse me, God basically condemns Israel's leaders. He says, you've been bad shepherds. You haven't taken care of the people. You've exploited them. And now you've let them get scattered to the ends of the earth. And I love that in the ancient Near East, shepherds were the common analogy used for politicians. If you're a political leader, religious leader, you should be somebody who is known for tending to your people, taking good care of them, making sure that they are safe. And I'm like, can we bring that back? Could we make that the (laughs) caveat for public service today? That would be great. Um, But anyhow, we have not. So God says, the human shepherds that I have set up, they don't know what they're doing because they're not operating from love. And so they're using the people for their own selfish gain and it's hurting people and that's not how I operate. And I haven't found a human that can actually do the job the way that it's supposed to be done. So I am going to come as the perfect shepherd, as the perfect ruler, as the right kind of king in order to bring the house back in order. And he tells us this in Ezekiel 34, verses 15 to 16. It'll be behind me. I myself, God is saying, I myself will tend my sheep. I will tend humanity and give them a place to lie down in peace as the sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who have strayed away. That might be what you feel like this morning. I will bring them safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them. I'll feed them justice. The Lord knows that we can't fix what we broke. We don't have the skills. We don't have the heart posture. As much as we want to operate out of love, we feel the tension. And that's true for all of us. We're like, yes, God, I love you so much. But also, why did that person just take the last turkey out of the freezer at Aldi? Or, ah, God, this is so great. You're so wonderful and powerful. If that person doesn't move right now so I can get my Christmas presents, I'm going to run their car off the road. Like, those are extreme. But we talk out of both sides of our mouth. No matter how long we've been following Jesus, the reality is we feel the duality within us, that incapability of truly operating from love 100% of the time. And God knows that. And he says, so you can't fix what you broke. Only I can fix what I broke. So I'm coming I'm going to come among you. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 11, says, I am the fulfillment of those words spoken in Ezekiel. He says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is like, if you're paying attention, I'm here. I am God in the flesh. I am the homeowner, returned to the busted up home, ready with my tools to fix it. I am the king who truly operates entirely from love with no motive or agenda other than to love people back to life. 
I am not corrupt. I am not greedy. I am not going to manipulate or scheme. In fact, we never once see God through Jesus attempt to join the political system of Rome. We never once see him do the typical things that humans do to get power because he knows that power is subversive and it starts from being a servant, a good shepherd. So Jesus identifies as the fulfillment. And what I love about this is that what it means is that when we are at our messiest, when we feel like we have blown the ship up and there is no coming back from it, God doesn't run away. Somehow shame tells us that we are untouchable in those moments. And God says, I'm right here in the room with you, in the jail cell, in the recovery space, going through withdrawal, talking to the doctor, figuring out how to battle cancer. Whatever the worst moment of your life has been, God was right there in the room with you. My, not my worst moment, so please don't think this is, but one of these examples that I have in my life is that I was pregnant with Judah in 2020. And at the eight-week scan, which is the first one you do, Tim couldn't obviously be with me. No one could be with you. It was like, you know, a ghost town in the OB's office. And they said, oh, something's wrong. And I remember being like, what do you mean something's wrong? And they're like, well, something's wrong. You need to go sit in the waiting room for another 30 minutes alone, and then we'll come talk to you about it. And I was like, okay. So, of course, my human brain starts spinning. And in that moment, I'm like, I'm texting Tim who's like not physically present. And and it was one of those moments where it was just me. And I realized that it wasn't just me. I had so many questions. I had so many things I could not answer and really wouldn't have an answer to. And I had this image then of Jesus sitting across from me in the waiting room. And I realized I do not go into this appointment without a friend, without a companion, without a carer, without somebody who has my back, no matter what the outcome is. They go into the appointment. They tell me we should get rid of the baby because they don't know if the baby will be viable. His nuchal fold is thick. He may have Down syndrome. And I was like, well, my brother has Down syndrome, so we're not doing that. Mm. Uh, at which point the lady was like, oh, I might have, maybe you should have read your chart. But all of that aside, it was, it was this really powerful moment of God being in the room with me and just saying, I'm not telling you if this is going to have a good outcome. I'm just telling you I'm here with you. And because I'm here with you, you are safe even if this means that your thoughts and plans for this child are different. And I will show you how to navigate that. And we had to wait 12 weeks until we could get a second scan, and the second scan revealed that everything was fine with Judah's development. But it was that whole process of just saying, that whole time, God never said to me, Judah's going to be fine. Never once did I have this this thought. And instead it said, no matter if Judah has a developmental delay, if he doesn't live, whatever, I am with you you will never walk through any moment of this alone. And that is what Jesus is, is telling us through this passage in Ezekiel and then through his actual showing up. He comes into the mess that we've created, the thing we broke. He comes into the things you break. He comes into the brokenness that was done to you by somebody else. And he's there, waiting, ready, but not inactive, because the next part of Ezekiel, 35 to 37, is this, this heart issue. So the second phase of renovations is like, Jesus says, I could fix everything, right? I could give you guys a brand new world. But the reality is, if you don't know how to love it or one another, it's just going to go back to the way that it came. 
We saw that in Genesis with the flood, remember? We saw that with every attempt that God made to partner with humanity, and we kept doing things wrong. And so he says, let's deal with the heart condition second, because that's really what's going to give you the capacity to live into the beautiful thing that I'm about to give you. In 36, in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, it's, it's the continuation of the verse we just started a bit more. God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you so that we can operate, oh, so that you will be able to follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And what I love is this picture. If you've read the Bible, this may connect some dots. And if you've never read it before, just stick with me for a sec. In the beginning, God created humanity and he gave us his image. He says, you have my likeness. And he, bre he breathed life into us. But there was so much freedom within that moment that he didn't like force us to be entirely like him. And so he gave us that free will and said, you can just choose. You can choose to follow me. You can choose to not follow me. I give that up to you. But here in the text in Ezekiel, God says, but I know that you're not really fully going to be able to follow me and love me without having me live within you. And so I'm going to give you the choice. You get to consent to this, which we find in the New Testament. It's a choice to follow Jesus, to surrender to him. And he says, if you want to do this with me, I will give you myself. I will take up residence within you because you can't do it on your own. So I will actually enter into you. I will give you my spirit, which is the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, who will empower you to begin to learn what it means to love unconditionally, genuinely, without agenda or false motivation. Like, how wild is that kind of love? That God's like, I love you so much, you've broken this so badly, but I am willing to come and live in the mess in you, the messy person, and give you myself so that you can learn how to live the way that I always intended for you, if you want. That is beautiful, and it is kind, but it is also the very heart of God that still honors free will because he says, I will not force that upon you. You have to choose if you want that. And so he gives Ezekiel in chapter 37 a picture of what it looks like when a human being does say yes to him. Ezekiel goes and he's in this valley with God and, and he sees all of these dried up bones. And I'm like, that had to have been terrifying. This is just a picture I found online of bones. Can you imagine seeing an entire valley of them? This whole vision freaks me out. I'm like, God probably has a very soft spot in his heart for Alfred Hitchcock or something. I don't know. But he goes in and he sees these bones and God says, do you think they can live again? And Ezekiel's like, I mean, scientifically, God, that's not how it works. Usually this is the end result, not the starting point. And God says, speak to the bones, Ezekiel. And he tells him what to say. And as he does, the bones begin to reconstruct as human beings. So again, crazy vision. He's watching like, and it's not a zombie army, guys. They're not half dead. Like they're sitting there and they're actually coming back to life. But there's something missing because at the very end of the vision, what God does is he calls his breath from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And his breath, his spirit comes and it fills these now, now living beings that once were dead. And he says, that is what it's like to be a human being. 
When God loves you and you say yes to him, you don't just function like a dried up sack of bones anymore, which is how most of the world is living. There, it, there's a selfishness, there's a death to the, to the reality. God, or Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And that's basically just the wages of our selfishness always carries a cost. There's all, it's not always literal death, which sometimes we think when we read Paul. And so we're just like, yeah, okay, I haven't died yet. But it's the death of being able to look someone in the eye. The death of a, of a reputation, a relationship, the death of our, our, our self-worth. There's always a cost to our selfishness. And God says it's like us going around like dried up bags of bones. But the day that we say yes to him and we surrender to him, he restores us from the inside out. And the the peak of that restoration isn't just that we are now fully human, because I think that's what human beings are supposed to be. The church calls it born again, but I'm like, we're, we're fully alive for the first time ever, the way that God always intended. And it's, it's the breath of life that comes back in us. And there's something so sacred to this because it is a reference back to Genesis when God made human beings out of dust and breathed in them. But what I love about this is God says, I am going to make you a new human being, but I'm not going to destroy you to make you new. I'm just going to restore you. I'm going to renovate you. Like you may think that the only way to follow God is to be totally decimated as a person, and that's not true. God wants to renovate you. He likes you. He likes you. Your personality, your talents, your gifts, your treasures. He wants to give you the ability to be you without the selfishness. To be genuinely you, motivated by his perfect love. That's incredible. He's not embarrassed by you. He doesn't wish you were just different. You know, sometimes we have that attitude towards people. I wish they were just different. They'd be easier to get along with. And God's like, that's not how I do it. I like them. Let's just put my spirit in them so that they can live the way that I've called them to live. This is why Israel could have hope in the exile, because God said, I'm doing this work. It may not look like it. In fact, it looks the opposite right now. You think I'm gone, but I'm working very hard behind the scenes right now. Not just for you, Israel, but for the whole of humanity right now. And then the third part, so now we've got, we've got the right contractor, right? Jesus comes, and he gives us the new heart. He, he fixes us so that when he fixes creation, we can actually take good care of it. But the third part is the fact that when we're selfish, it has a ripple effect. As much as we would like to think that our actions are autonomous and they don't really do anything, wars don't start just because they start. Selfishness is the slow progression that, that leads to everything, disease, death, chaos, war, genocide, racism, all of it. It all starts small and it keeps building into these ripples that become waves, that become typhoons that have consumed our planet, that have consumed humanity. And, and they give this mess a name in Ezekiel. God calls him Gog, and he's an amalgam of all the world's evil and violence. And God goes to war with all of the things that we have done. All the damage, all the broken windows, all the dripping pipes, all the banged up doors, everything we have destroyed and continue to destroy, God goes to war because he says, you can't fix that. So I am going to come and I am going to set it right all over again. And so I had this picture while I was working through that passage. 
It's almost like every act of selfishness is a piece of black cloth. And the way that humanity has lived, we have shrouded the earth in darkness. And when God comes and he does this thing, he, he retracts all of the darkness off of the planet. Starts with us as individuals, but then he will remove every single consequence we've ever had, which is just remarkable to think. And the result, what the house looks like at the end is chapters 40 to 48. What creation looks like when God is all said and done with this renovation plan is the big reveal. Chip and Joanna Gaines pull the things aside, and he's like, this is what we've done. Um, it's, I don't, it's so silly, but it's so cool to think, like, this is where God is going. If you want to know why we exist, what's happening, when's the world going to end, I can't give you all the details of what it looks like, and I don't think we really need to know that, frankly. This is the goal. And this is what I'm going to talk about because this is where hope is and this is what draws people back to real life. So what we see, God's like, oh, cool, Ezekiel, everything's been dealt with. Now you get the blueprints for what humanity is going to look like after. It is my best work. Enjoy. And he goes into painstaking detail. So if you're not a detail-oriented person, you will probably not enjoy these last chapters. But I will sum it up for you into two things. The first thing Ezekiel sees is a new temple. And it's easy for us to imagine like a real physical, literal temple being built in Jerusalem because that's what the exiles were hoping for. They're like, oh, God's literally going to bring us back to the land and we're going to have a brand new temple and it's going to be great. And he's like, well, actually, it's Jesus. The new temple is not a place. It's a person. And from Jesus is a stream of living water, which is a reference back to his conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where he says, everything that flows out of me because the picture that Ezekiel has is literally the stream of water flowing out of this temple and going to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea suddenly has fish in it again. It's teeming with life. Everything along the way is lush and tropical, like a jungle, if you will. And Jesus says, everything that comes out of me brings people back to eternal life. Here's what he talks with the woman at the well about. The truth is God's renovation plan is anchored in Jesus. There's no self-help in all the world. There's nothing else in all the world that will bring about the freedom and the restoration that you need and that our world needs, except for Jesus. He is it. He's everything. And the beauty of that is that you don't have to earn him. You don't have to be worthy of him. You don't have to do anything because he's already done it. All you have to do is say, yes, like I want to follow you. As wild as that is, as hard as that is for us to understand, he is the catalyst to the new world, the new creation, to new humanity, to your freedom from whatever it is that you are buried under. And so around Jesus, the temple, a city springs up. And for a long time, people were like, oh, it's a new Jerusalem, quite literally. And it's not. The new city around this temple is redeemed humanity. It's all of the people of all time who've ever said yes to following God. It's all the people who are like, we are yours. We are the city that springs up around Jesus because we have come and gathered. He's collected us. This amalgam of people who are like, I don't have my act together. You do. I'm going to follow you and trust that even if I still mess up, you never give up on me. You never forget about me and you never turn back. The picture at the end of the story is God bringing home the family that he always created humanity to be. And that is exactly what he promised us, right? That's exactly what he said would happen. It's Eden back to life. 
There's easy intimacy with God. There's connection. There's access. There's proximity. There is everything that humanity wants most right in front of our eyes. That's what God's doing. That's where the world will end. That is the end game for the Father. He said, I created humanity to be my family. They didn't do so well with that. I am going to bring us back. I am committed that much to you. There is nothing you can do to turn me away from my love for you and this plan that I have for all of the world. Amen. Nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. You do not get to derail God's plan because you messed up again. You just don't. As much as you might think that you have ruined it all, you have not. And so this new home, this place where we'll go and we'll dwell with the Lord, we're told at the very end of Ezekiel 48, verse 35, is the Lord is there. Homage, perhaps, to Ezekiel chapter 1, where we see the presence of God leaving in very strange fashion and going to Babylon. He has come home. Really, we have come home. And we are hanging out with him side by side once more. I need to wrap us up because our kids are going to get squirrely. And I'm sad because I had three questions that I wanted to give you guys time to think about. I'll post them on our social media so you can do that in a quiet space with yourself. But we have spent the last 11 months looking at the heart of God for us. There is so much in the world, our own shame, our own brokenness, that tells us that God does not want you. And it is not true. Even interpretations of the Bible and well-meaning pastors and all sorts of things have said things and taken stuff out of context in the scripture made people think, God is done with me. And it's not true. As we go into Advent, which is all about God with us, we are going to take the next four weeks after this Sunday to do things a little different. We're going to have a lot more experiential things. Our talks are only going to be about 10 or 15 minutes because we want to connect with the reality that God is with us physically, tangibly, here today. So that's where we're leading to next week. We're just going to continue on, if you will, in this way. But right now we're going to move into ministry time. So I'm going to ask if you guys want to stand. Matt, if you want to do something. <laughs> we talked about that one. If you want to strum, we can strum. Dan's very contentedly. They played really well together in that room. We're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. There's nothing hokey or wonky about it, although sometimes he does show up in strange ways. So all bets are off. We leave it to him. Um, but basically, our prayer team is going to come forward. They're available for prayer. They may just come out and pray with you. But if you see somebody with a blue tag and you'd really like prayer today, please just approach them. Um, but we're going to just ask the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do right now. So, Oh, okay. Yeah, if he feels like it's corporate, yeah. Cam will do it. Oh. Um, so I just had a word that I feel like resentment is something that is blocking someone or that blocks me. And I have a word that, that might be for others too to hear just to remind you that those resentments are holding you in place from the freedom that you mm -hmm. can receive. And that freedom is not just like a break. It's like a ever-going, never-ending thing, a status freedom and I just want to, I think that the prayer team would join me in wanting to pray mm -hmm. for you and praying also for anyone who is feeling like they're in a place where they don't see God mm -hmm. as a good shepherd, 
that we want to pray over you to know that God is with you and is a good shepherd in those dark places or even in the good places that God is with you. Yeah. Thank you, Eric.